0: A couple of months ago, I did an internet poll where I asked my followers if any of them had been arrested. And a few people said they had, including myself. And then I asked if anyone had actually gone to prison. And only one person said that they had. And I reached out to that person, who I've actually known for years, but haven't seen for quite a while, and asked if he would be willing to be interviewed for the show. And he agreed. Getting discomfortable with prison. So this morning, you had a meeting with your parole officer. I did. How did that go?
1: It went really well. I see her about every two weeks. And at this point, it's just checking in. I have a pretty good track record, and she puts a lot of trust in me. So it's just basically a house things. How's your wife? She's met her. Uh, How's the job? Any contact with police? Any issues? And that's it. Sometimes there's a urine test. So how
0: long until you are not on parole? About another year. Another year. And how long have you been out of prison now?
1: Oh, it's coming up on two years. So two years since
0: and one more year of parole.
1: That's right. So a total almost just under four year sentence.
0: And did you actually, were you in prison for four years?
1: No, uh, I was in prison for one third of my sentence. So total time, it was about 14, 15 months. Okay. And I sp- I would spend time in different prisons, different security levels. And for the rest of the time, I'll be on parole until the sentence expires.
0: And once parole is done, is this is still on your permanent record or something?
1: Oh, totally. Totally. This'll, this will mar me until I can get a pardon. Uh, I'll never be able to have my record expunged because of the charges that I have. They're pretty serious. Okay. But nonetheless, I can't travel – uh, to a lot of countries. I'll never be in the U.S. again. They'll never give me an exemption to allow me to travel there, even when wow. I'd spend, you know, they say seven years, you get a pardon. I doubt they'd, I, I'm skeptical they'd let me in, but some people have had success. So let's go back. Mm-hmm. What was your life like before you went to prison? <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a pretty high stress environment, I'd say. I was a pretty stressed out person a lot. Uh, but again, it was uh, a lot of fun. I mean, it sounds terrible to say, but it was Spending a lot of money, a lot of traveling, uh, it's incredibly dangerous stuff I was doing. Is it
0: like problematic for you to talk about this?
1: Yes, uh, because I always think about who could be listening. Obviously, I'm not using my name, mm-hmm. but I'm still weary of sharing details, especially when somebody feels they could be incriminated by what I say.
0: Right. So it's, it's less about incriminating yourself and more about people that you used to work with. Totally. Right. I see.
1: I haven't committed even a even a jaywalking offense since I've been out of prison, and I've totally turned my life around.
0: So what were you actually sent to prison for?
1: Uh, my actual, I don't want to say what I was charged with, because you could find very easily, but it was a violent offense. Okay. And so basically I had a gun. Someone owed me money. I found out where they lived, and I went there. And uh, it went wrong, and the person who owed me money contacted the police. Mm-hmm. They spent about a week investigating, and then... Came to my door with a SWAT team.
0: So what was that transition like? Like your life before you're arrested and your life after? What What? What was that?
1: Oh, geez. My life before would have been very lonely. I'd shut out family, old friends, sacrificed just about every important relationship under the belief that you know, kind of every man is an island and no one can truly be trusted. Mm-hmm. And if you want something, you take it. You do anything you can to get it. And I was completely involved in the belief that money brought me respect. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's what was important in the Mm -hmm. world. Respect.
0: Having respect.
1: Having money, having respect, having people fear you. Or I kind of got off a little bit on people who knew what I was up to. And you could tell that they treated me differently because of it. Right. And that felt good. I liked it, definitely. Yeah. Um, I don't like it now. Now it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. Right. But that's because my total belief system has changed. So how it's changed then to now, simply belief system, now I totally believe in the power of love. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, awesome. sounds, it sounds corny when I say it. I said that to my parole officer and she laughed. But it's completely true. I mean, I had a watershed moment that, I, that always keeps me grounded, that always gives me perspective. And it was walking into my bail hearing. After my initial arrest, I was thrown into segregation for about three weeks. Mm -hmm. That was a very difficult process. and I'm sure we can talk about that after. But um, as far as beliefs from there, being in that segregated position gave me a lot of time to think about where things went wrong, why I valued the things I did, Mm -hmm. and who I was as a person. And I wasn't quite sure who I wanted to be yet. I just know what I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And what my moment of walking into the courtroom after that segregation and seeing family and friends, people I hadn't seen in years, uh, whether it was morbid curiosity that they showed up, but there's people showing up for me. There was people mm-hmm. who were visibly shaken and the mm-hmm. courtroom was packed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was basically my, my family got all these people there it pretty much went to bat for me. And that kind of shattered my, you're you're alone. You have to do everything for yourself because mm-hmm. I needed all of them at that point. Mm-hmm. So incredibly.
0: And it was obvious that they weren't there because they feared you or respected the money
1: you'd made <laughs> yeah. or anything like that. They didn't know anything about it. They right. were all in the dark. They had no idea. It was shocking for my family to realize after all the lies I would told them kind of what I was up to and mm-hmm. in the very worst way. They didn't, still didn't know anything. They just know that I did this thing. Yeah. Which, you know, it was on the news and it was a big, it was a big to-do. Every news outlet picked up the actual crime. Right. So seeing all those people there, that hit me like a ton of bricks. I broke down immediately walking into the courtroom. You know, I was physically in shambles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, You know, you barely shower, you're dirty, you're unshaven. You don't know what's going to happen to you. I didn't know who was going to be there. I'd spoken to some people on the phone, but the initial shock those conversations were hard they were terse and having your family come to visit you between you know that the glass the midnight express you know hands mm-hmm. upon the glass from mm-hmm. each side while both parties are crying that was the only interactions i'd had so uh, walking in to see everyone there it was you know, world shattering for me and you realized people cared you had you had to support you had love mm-hmm.
0: you had something to fight for
1: i had a reason to change I had, a, right. that, that gave me the impetus. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to gain their respect back, their trust back. Um, I wanted the things that they had. Families, mm-hmm. you know, good relationships with their friends. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't want anyone to be scared of me. I didn't want right. anyone to say, Oh, that guy did that. Avoid him. I was so scared of being isolated mm-hmm. because I just spent three weeks you know, in a box with no window with right. the light on 24 hours a day, not knowing what was going to happen to me. And my biggest fears from just running through your head constantly, you have no TV, no
0: radio. What, what would that, what would the biggest
1: fear be in that moment? The hardest thing for me was this is going to kill my grandmother. <laughs> it was yeah. irrational, but you know, she's going to die. I'm not going to be there when she dies. Uh, the shame, my family having to explain to their friends, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, For someone who deals with the topic of shame like yourself, Mm -hmm. you know, it was it was what's the worst thing you've ever done. Now everyone knows about it. Yeah. So it was (laughs) it was crushing. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: What do you think would have happened in your whole story if you walked into that courtroom and there
1: was no one there? It would have been a different story. That's an interesting question. Um, I would have probably reverted to the fuck you. You can't touch me. You know, fuck you, do your worst. Because I didn't kill anyone. What's the worst they're going to do to me? The game I was in, I was realistically going to end up dead or in jail. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're constantly thinking about that. That's where the stress comes from. Mm -hmm. So, any person Mm -hmm. who's living that lifestyle who hasn't contemplated going to prison and what's going to happen, you know, they're an idiot, quite frankly. But uh, what's the worst that could happen? You know, (laughs) as well. You're going to to the worst place imaginable, uh, or you're going to die. And. I'd seen it to happen to friends, so it's it's pretty apparent. But uh, I would have definitely gone the harder road. I would have walked in there and, you know, thought punching someone in the face and clicking up real fast with a group of guys who are similar to me would have been the way to go. No one's coming to bat for me. It's just me. Okay. So it could have been a completely different Completely different, completely story. different ending. If they, the would have, story. if they would have dropped me and cut all the ties with me, it would have been, I would have been dead within five years for sure. Wow. Absolutely.
0: So tell me about the process of like the
1: trial. Oh, man, that was the worst part of the whole thing. Really? Absolutely. It's your first experience with having all of your rights taken away. Right. You get no decisions. You get no choices. Right. So while I was on bail awaiting for the trial, it wasn't whether I decided I was going to plead guilty or go to trial, making all those decisions, uh, you know, figuring out financially how you're going to cover these massive bills coming your way. Mm Mm-hmm and you're totally restricted while on bail. So I was able to get bail. My first brush with the court system was the judge deciding whether or not they're going to let me out while the, the, until the trial date comes. Right. And so that was stressful because I was in a pre-trial, which is the roughest place to be. It's where you don't want to do your time. So Surrey or North Fraser pretrial. That's a a prison or – It's it's called a pretrial center. It's where they take you. The first stage of prison is the drunk tank. The police take you. They process you. Then if you're – if it was serious, if they're not going to let you go with a promise to appear, if you're going to spend the weekend in prison or if you're – if it was a serious enough crime that you need a bail hearing, then you're going to North Fraser in Vancouver. Okay. And that's for people who have sentences of two years or less – Or are awaiting their trial and have been denied bail.
0: So why is that such a terrible environment?
1: There's no amenities. So you're stuck in a pod. If you've ever watched like uh, 60 Days In or Orange is the New Black and you see those tiers they're living on with uh, the double bunks in the rooms and the sink and the toilet and the stairs going up and the tables in the center. uh, So where you eat, exercise and live and do everything within your pod, that's a pretrial. A prison is a huge place (laughs) with you know it could be five hundred six hundred a thousand guys and you're you have a job uh, you have rec time right it's a much different environment okay and within the prison system there's minimum security medium and maximum security and that's all for guys who are doing real time right so how long were you in pre-trial Pre-trial was three weeks in segregation when I first got arrested.
0: So is that isolation?
1: That's because they didn't know anything about me and they were trying to sweat me for details. Okay. So tell me which gangs you're affiliated with so we know where to put you. Well, I'm not affiliated with a gang. You're lying. The nature of your crimes, basically no one who's involved in this type of criminality isn't involved with some organization. And that's how they try to get information from you. Right. And I wouldn't tell them a thing. Obviously, I wasn't – truthfully, I wasn't involved with a gang. Mm-hmm. So I, I was telling the truth, but I wouldn't have caved to anything, any of their questions because nothing had yet to be determined by the court system. Right. So any details I gave them could have been used against me yeah. easily. yeah. So they just kept me in segregation because they thought I was lying to them. But in reality, I just had nothing to tell them. Right. So I had no interaction with anybody else. I never saw anyone else. Uh, You're locked up for 23 and a half hours a day. The lights are always on. Uh, It's called administrative segregation. So it's where they send people who are either in protective custody or people who they don't want to put them with the general population for fear of what might happen.
0: So is it pretty much the same as when they, you know, we hear a lot in the news lately about people being put in isolation. Is that the same thing basically?
1: No. In a pretrial, it could be, but yes. But in a prison where you're hearing about that for long periods of time, it's different. Okay. Okay. So once I got bail, it became kind of a waiting game and it was extremely difficult because your lawyers are waiting for information from the crown. You don't know what they know. Right. Uh, You can't form a strategy. You're under incredible conditions. So I had a curfew. I had to be home by 10 p.m. And they're checking on me all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're one minute late. Then you revoke your surety. So we put up, my family put up $125,000 surety against property they own to ensure I didn't break any of my rules. And if I do, that's all the government takes at all. Wow. So the stress factor is high. It's if I make a mistake, I'm going right back to this terrible place mm-hmm. And I'm screwing over my family and it's because I made a small mistake, like the train was late or something. Right. So you have to be extremely diligent. And I had to get a job and it's your first brush with freedom, but with conditions. Right. So you're out there, you're, when I, when they let me out after I was granted bail, my family was waiting for me by the prison door, essentially by the jail door. And I just fell to my knees. I was just So happy to be free, honestly, like pictures of Nelson Mandela flash in my head and I see how ridiculous that is now. But I was like, that's what it feels like to be, to get a first taste of freedom. And then you realize how restricted that is. Right. And it's tough. I have to leave my job now because if I don't get home in half an hour, I'm going back to prison. Right. And it's really hard to be respected in your job when you're under those rules. It's very hard to advance. And certainly you have no chance of getting a job that has any type of responsibility or anything. Right. So you're stuck in a crappy job. And you have to constantly be aware of what you're doing and how bad it could really mess up everything.
0: So you go from this place of living the high life yes. in a kind of unrestricted profession mm-hmm. where you are quite uh, successful at
1: your job,
0: mm-hmm. you know, though it's criminal. totally. Um, and now you're at a completely different social position, basically.
1: Oh, God. It's, it felt like I felt terrible about myself. And I didn't start to feel good about myself until the people that I loved started telling me I was doing good. I felt like I was a total piece of shit. I was going to prison. My wow. I <laughs> I had zero self-esteem. And what really helped me was going on dates, quite frankly. Really? Yeah. It was um, I met someone. She's amazing. And we ended up getting married, actually. So, so she,
0: you 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 were dating on per on like
1: yeah. pre trial. So after I'd, after I'd gotten out on bail, I was like you know swiping right on Tinder. And, and
0: how like were you telling people the situation or
1: totally entirely? I was really I had, came from a place where I'd lied so much, right to everyone. It was brutal honesty at all times as my policy, and wow. it's. it's kind of toned down from brutal honesty to just be honest yeah. and o- own your feelings and yeah. tell the people you love how you feel yeah. and what's going on. But I didn't have much to hide, so it was very easy. But that, <laughs> that brutal honesty phase when you're starting to date someone is it's difficult. It's, you're talking to them and, oh, well, let's meet for dinner at nine. Oh, actually, could we make that six? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Why? Well, I have a curfew. You still live with your parents? No, I have a police curfew. And then telling them what happened. Wow. And you can Google me and find out what happened pretty freaking fast. So right. uh, luckily, the girl that I married, the woman that I married, saw something in me. And she is a successful person. She's someone that you look at and you respect what she's done with herself. She's yeah. worked hard and done well. And I couldn't believe she had any interest in me. And that gave me my kind of first – that gave me my confidence back to – go out and go after things I wanted and to think about my future and believe I actually had one that was going to be as enjoyable as my previous lifestyle of doing whatever the fuck I wanted to whom whenever with no consequences.
0: It's interesting to have been seeking a kind of respect based on fear, power, money, status, Mm -hmm. and then basically looking for a new kind of respect Based on honesty, love and acceptance mm-hmm. and and connection mm-hmm. and discovering, I guess, through your family your your friends and your now wife, that you could still get that. Even with your mistakes, you could always still get that.
1: That redemption yeah. essentially is what it was. It was totally redemptive for me. It changed who I was. I had something happen to me that was traumatic. And that gave me the impetus to change. Yeah. And I found within them, you know, my reasoning to change and something to move, to look forward to. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a social
0: process, this redemption. It really <laughs> is a connection with other people. It's not something that I'm mean, like, maybe in theory, you could find it in yourself or you could find it with, with God and yourself or something. But it's clear that as like social animals, when other people say to us, like, hey, I'm not giving up on you. That's so powerful.
1: Incredibly powerful. And I think it has to come from someone who you want that acceptance from. right? You know, if, if my parole office says, I, I believe in you. Well, I, yeah, great. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to hear that, that you have faith in me, but you could also send me back to prison. Yeah. But when my mother says it or my wife says it or my dad, then it's powerful for me. Yeah. It's like, yes, okay. It's validation at its core. I need them to validate that. and. Yes, I don't care what other people who I don't love think. I could care less if they judge me. I expect that. Yeah. And, but they've already done passed their judgment, and it's cool. So I don't need to rationalize anything. I don't need to explain anything else. They trust me now, and it feels really great.
0: So you dated your wife mm-hmm. awaiting prison. Yeah. Like, did, did you guys get engaged before you went to
1: prison, during, after? No, it was I'd been out for about a year we had an opportunity. If we wanted to have conjugal visits at prison, we had to be married. Okay. So we had discussed, you know, it was kind of, if you want to come see me for the weekend, spend the weekend with me in prison, then, (laughs) um, you know, we need to get married in the prison. And that was immediately shut down. (laughs) And I didn't want that to happen either. But, you know, with that weekend comes, you know, all the food you want to eat and things. So, I would have married her for a really great stake, for sure. <laughs> Among other things. <laughs> and then redone. Human and then re- intimacy. Uh, yeah. And then at, yeah. that, at that point, uh, yes, human intimacy would have been a big part of it as well. But, um, I mean, she really stuck it out. She told her family right away. And she had to deal with <laughs> everything that comes with that. Yeah. You know, I'm dating a guy who's on his way to prison and I'm going to be with him while he's through prison. And, I guess you didn't know for sure though. Oh, no idea. I was there was times when, you know, we're talking on the phone every day and there's I was, you know, rereading my journal in preparation for this and looking through you know me writing about the conversations we had and how difficult it was and how everyone asked her about it constantly and I couldn't imagine how that would go. Oh, how's everything going? How's your boyfriend who's in prison? Right. To, Oh, your boyfriend's in prison. Oh my God. Why, why are you with him? And it's kind of, you know, I was worried, but at the same time I was like, I don't expect her to stay. I really hope she does. I really hope she does. But she never wavered. Not once. She was, I'll be here when you get out. And it was difficult, but she was there like every other weekend, visiting me constantly by anything I needed. Send me anything I needed. Um, you're, when you're in prison, you get a pen pack once you go to a federal prison, which is a list of items inmates are allowed to have, a TV, headphones, things like that, that she sent in for me, put together, made phone calls, gave people updates. Between her and before I met her, my sister, they were like the real heroes of my day-to-day survival in prison.
0: Absolutely. What would it have been like if you didn't have that? those people on the outside kind of rooting for you and supporting you?
1: I, it's incredibly easy to answer that because I saw about 90% of everyone else there who didn't have that. Right. You see people who are, you know, in prison because it's hot meals and a bed to sleep in and they'll go out when their sentence ends and reoffend immediately to get back to not being homeless. Yeah. So to think about where I would have been if everyone would have abandoned me or if she would have been with me and then left me is something you think about constantly, but also that you try to prepare for. And the prison parole officers want you to prepare for that. They see you losing those relationships as a sign that you're going to reoffend. Right. So they ask you as part of your the plan you have to write to um, show to the parole board is – how are you going to handle these situations? If your girlfriend dumps you, your grandmother dies, all the things that you have to tell them, what are your biggest fears? What are you, what could be some mitigating factors in causing you to reoffend? Right. Or, uh, so what are your triggers? Yeah. And so you have to think about that and then write a plan about what you're going to do. Wow. And, uh, it's pretty cathartic. I remember when I was writing my plan, they don't give you much guidance in prison. They, it's on you to write your plan and what it's going to be like. And I wrote, I'm going to do this. And if this happens, I'm going to do this. And I didn't have to go through any institutional programming. Uh, when they tested me, uh, they test, they said, okay, you don't need a violent offenders program. You don't need a drug abuse program. Okay. You don't need a spousal abuse program. You don't need a sexual assault program, whatever it was. So I just had a job and I had schooling. So I didn't have to go to school while in prison. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't understand the terminology they use to quantify your progress in prison. And there's all these anagrams where Fear means this, 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 or, right. you know, it's um, it's very much a system to help people with no schooling understand, you know, the process of integrating into society. So I wrote a page, showed it to my parole officer, and they said, great, good job. And then I was proud of myself and went back to my cell and talked to another guy who was also going up for his parole hearing soon. And he showed me his, and he'd been through just about every program. And his was seven pages long into areas with a table of contents. Wow. Uh, it had, he had used all the terminology and I didn't, I hadn't heard any of it. And he said, no, you're going to need this. They're going to ask you these questions. And so I had to, he had to school me real fast on what it needed to be. So I went back to my parole officer the next day and said, I'm going to need that paper back before you submit it. That wasn't what I should submit. And he said, good, I'm glad you're, you know, taking it upon yourself to actually, wow. to actually go out and do that. And it was a test. If I would have really? submitted that page and sat down with the parole board, I would have not gotten parole. They would say, oh, you don't understand anything about your crime cycle. And I would have said, what's a crime cycle? Right. You know, and that's.
0: And I mean, was that valuable to you or were you just playing oh, the game?
1: No, it was playing the game. It was highly valuable, but you have to play the game right. and you have to do it on their terms. And that's what prison is about. Stand up, sit down, you know, put on this, don't talk back, do what we tell you and don't have an opinion. You don't like that too bad.
0: Is this person going to submit to society and society's rules? Yes. Is that what it comes down you to? You have
1: to understand these are the rules. Fill out this sheet citing the rules. Pair it back to us that you know the rules and you know yourself well enough to stay away from the things that are going to cause you to reoffend. And then we understand that you understand and we're going to let you out. Right. Under conditions. But they figured uh, – I guess I figured. It, I figured it out how to play the game really quickly. It's just do what they say.
0: Now, the people who are like the fellow inmate who gave you this advice mm-hmm. – is this person, is it going to work for them without the support that you had? Mm. To what degree is recovering from prison and changing your life basically contingent on
1: having outside support? Completely. Absolutely. For you to do it by yourself, just like anything else that you need support to do, any difficult thing you're going to do needs support. And if you don't have... There's really not a system in place outside of the parole system to make sure to check in on people. It's incredibly difficult for someone with mental illness or someone just um, dealing with social issues to be able to stay on the right track. It is. It's very easy to take a shortcut. And for someone who's seen the money you can make or is addicted to drugs and just wants to get high again, it's hard without someone that you respect and love with their hand on your shoulder telling you don't do that. Right? You know, then it's very, it's very real. You see what you're going to lose. But it's easier to harm yourself than it is to harm others, I think.
0: So let's go back to What was that transition like now from you actually go to trial, Mm -hmm. you get convicted, you're going to prison?
1: So I didn't go to trial. I pled guilty. My lawyer was excellent and was able to negotiate a plea deal for me that didn't include a majority of the charges they wanted to pin to me. So they worked out a deal. And thankfully, the judge who sat on my plea deal for my sentencing was the same one who sat for my bail hearing. So I had the benefit of him seeing all my family and friends, for him reading all their support letters, and for seeing him seeing the change in me from my attitude previous to after a year and a half on bail. Right. So he was, he agreed with the plea deal with the sentencing and gave me what I'd pled guilty to. So that's it. There was no trial. I wanted to avoid a trial. Right. If I would have gone to trial, then I could have gotten zero years or I could have gotten eight.
0: Right. And were you, pretty much prepared to go to prison at this point.
1: Totally. Uh, I mean, I was crying my eyes out when I was walking into the courthouse, you know, that moment when my now wife is driving me to the courthouse in the morning to be sentenced to pretty much how long I know I'm going away for. And then you start your sentence from that point. And it was a really bleak morning. And, you know, it was a drive from Burnaby to downtown Vancouver and it was silent. And you pull up and we're just both crying in the car. I remember me getting out of the car and her, she's on her way to work. And I'm walking up to the courts and I'm just kind of standing to about to go in the building and she's still sitting in her car and the car is just idling. And I'm just picturing her sobbing in the car as I'm, you know, she's about to head off to work. Mm -hmm. And it was it was difficult walking in there, but at the same time it was, let's get the punishment started. Let's end this, let's get through it.
0: Did you feel a sense that you needed this, that you
1: deserved this? Not at that time. I wasn't feeling either of those things. It was, I was very, very scared, extremely scared. Right. I knew that I was going to go to pretrial and I'd been there before, but this time I was definitely going to be in the general population. Right. Which I was, I was happy about. Because that's a lot better than segregation. You can come out of your cell and move around, get a TV, creature comforts. Right. But I also knew that I was going to a federal prison. I was going to, (laughs) I was going to the big boy prison and I needed to harden up real fast. Because I just spent a year and a half on bail, coming to grips with my emotions and my feelings and my family. And now it's time to put on the tough guy face because you're walking into a prison.
0: So like all this kind of healing that you were probably doing over the last year and a half on bail Mm -hmm. now has to go into hiding behind (laughs) the kind of armor that you need to survive prison.
1: Totally. And, you know, I couldn't watch a prison show it had me freaking out before right. I, I, wa- I was going into the, I was going to prison. There was no way that I could watch one of those shows entirely without being like, oh my God, I'm going to have to walk up to the first guy, I see and punch him in the face and join a gang and get tattoos. And I might um, have to do that. Or someone's going to try and rape me. What am I going to do? Yeah. You know, someone's going to test me. I'm going to have to fight someone. And when you've just come to grips with who you are as a person, it's scary.
0: Would you say that you would have been better equipped to just go right into prison, though you may not have, your life may not have transformed in the same way? It's almost like you were more ready for prison before you changed.
1: I was absolutely more ready for prison before I changed, but I wouldn't have met my wife. Without bail, I would have met her. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah. But, uh... I would have been more prepared, but at the same time, I wouldn't because I didn't know anything about it. I wouldn't have known anything new. I wasn't talking to people who've been to prison. You don't know what it's like until you get there. You don't know how you fit in until you set foot in the environment. So what was it like? Oh man, when I first, when I got through signing all my papers and getting transferred and walking into where I spent most of my time, which was a medium security prison, is tempered by this three months you spend in a place called RRAC. And anyone who has a federal sentence goes to ARAC. You all go there and it's an observation center and it's like a max prison. You're on lockdown a lot and they treat okay. you terribly and you still don't get your pen pack until you get out of there. So depending upon what your crime was and how you act in that place is depending upon where you get sent to. You could go to a max if you're a troublemaker, you could go a medium if if you're a violent criminal or you could go to a minimum if you're just a nonviolent drug offender or you made a big mistake and you're doing a couple years. To so
0: you're, you're being sorted. You're being sorted. Yeah. And is there also a sort of a hazing aspect to it?
1: Well, when you get there, they lock you in your room for 24 hours. And what you do is you put your paperwork up in your window so the guys on the unit walking around can see what you did and pretty much decide where you fit in and where you sit before you actually set foot wow. in their little – This is the other inmates. In their little world. It's only a pod of about 30 guys. Okay. There's 100 guys in Iraq at the time, maybe 120. And they're rotating in and out. So you really don't know anyone too well. I made a few friends, but they're gone at different times. They might be at the end of their stay and going to their prison when you get there and no one's there for a long time and everyone's pretty much on their best behavior.
0: What's that like? Like what's that first day they let you out finally? Like what <laughs> you just walk around, you say hi to people? Like what is that like?
1: Well, people are knocking on your door, looking at your paperwork okay, and, and talking, talking to, to you them, and okay. saying, "What are you in for? What'd you do? Yeah, what gang are you in? You know who do you know? Right. What'd you do?" And that's a rotating cycle and you have to figure out who's who. Kind of by coming to your door and how to react to them. You know, some giant guy comes to your door. You're treating him differently than the old man who knocks on your door. Right. Who you're like, basically, you're basically trying to figure out who's a child molester so you can stay away from them. Right. Who's in for sexual crime so you can stay away from They're them.
0: They're trying to figure that out about you. As
1: well as you trying to figure okay. that out about them. Right. Because once you start talking to, you know, uh, someone who's in for one of those bad crimes, and I mm-hmm. put my hands up in bunny ears there for the audience at home. but Quote, unquote, bad. Quote, unquote, yeah. unquote bad crimes. Yeah. You have to avoid them at all costs. Or and so instantly. that
0: scene, that is, that's a real, in prison, there's like this hierarchy in which there are bad crimes and there are other
1: crimes. 100%. What you did is your initial kind of rank. So so child
0: in. molester is probably the worst. Is if that right? If you
1: hurt children or women, you're at, you're at the low rung of the ladder. And there's so many guys in prison who carry so much guilt about what they've done. And they feel impotent because there's nothing they can do for their families or to help. They're kind of stuck. Is they want to attack or cause violence to someone who hurt someone that they could have cared about or right. it's their way of trying to misguidedly help society. Right. They, they become the garbage men or the enforcers of you know social justice. It makes prison. sense
0: in a twisted way.
1: It's, it's unfortunately it does. But most people come to realize pretty quick that that type of activity doesn't help them get out of prison. Right. So you are going to interact with those people. And prisons, maybe five, six years ago, they integrated all prisons. So no longer would they send all child molesters to one place. They'd integrate them into every prison population.
0: But everyone knows they're a child molester because you put your paperwork up.
1: Absolutely. And if you are duplicitous in any way, if you spend too much time in your cell, you are suspect. And you are suspect of being a child molester or being – pretty much just a crazy person right you have to make friends so there's a like a lot of strategy here the whole thing is strategy it's it's who do i talk to where what do i talk about what can i tell them about me everyone's going to be trying to take advantage of you in some way you're Mm -hmm. trying to see what they can get from you Mm -hmm. especially people who are prison savvy So if you're new and you've never been to prison, someone's going to try and take advantage of you. Right. And how you react to that, again, will determine where you stand in that hierarchy. And
0: what can they get from you?
1: Everything. From the sandals that the prison gives you to wear in the shower. Right. To things in your pen pack. I mean, if you lose your TV, you're you're just sitting in your cell for 10 hours a day not doing anything. Right. Uh, They could take everything that you have and extort you – to do terrible things right. and threaten your family on the outside. I mean, there's guys in there who are powerful people mm-hmm. and they become father figures to younger kids in prison and they could have those kids do anything to you. So you could lose your life right, as well as every small possession you have, which right. you cherish right. because you have so little.
0: So what, like, who did you align with? Like, what, how did it shape up?
1: Oh, well, I, so in Arac. let's just skip through Iraq because everyone's on their best behavior, except for the people who are definitely going to a maximum security prison, the murderers, the people right. who are very violent and they're on their first day, they'll just go start a fight and immediately go to their mother prison. So let's fast forward to me at my mother prison, where okay. I spend most of my time. And it's a fully integrated, very large prison and figuring out where I fit in there was extremely difficult. There is kind of like a uh, unwritten rule to every area, the gym, the, where you eat, uh, and uh, certainly within the units themselves. So what who you live with is your first kind of foray into the hierarchy. Who is this person you live with and where do they fit in? Do you get to choose who you live with? Not initially, but if you make a friend, you guys can get a room together if you can convince the person you're living with to take the other room. So for me, the person they stuck me with initially... Was a problem for me. He was an older gentleman. He had been on the installment plan his entire life. Meaning what, is, what does that mean? So he'd been in and out of prison his entire okay. life. So he'd done a cumulatively 18 years in prison over about 40 years. Okay. So he was in his 50s, in and out since he was a teenager, late teenager. Okay. Because I was new and he'd been in so much, he could do whatever he wanted. I had a problem with that because physically I could take him. This guy was not a threat physically. And after about a week, I saw the way other prisoners looked at him.
0: So you were being sort of not dominated but treated like a a pupil by someone who was putting you in a strange social ranking basically. He
1: was as a newbie. But the the things that he got arrested for and the things that I was doing criminally, I was much – More advanced than he was.
0: So on the scale of criminality, your crime actually gave you some status.
1: Absolutely. People knew who I was coming in. And I had friends who had, you know, said, this is our friend. And if you bump into him, then treat him well. And that didn't help me because none of those people were in the prison where I spent most of my time. But some of them were in a prison I was transferred to later, which, which definitely changed my comfortability. But that first week, I quickly realized that this guy is not someone I should be in a room with. And, you know, he was loud and he had this long oleaginous kind of greasy hair and he was a conspiracy theorist and he drove me nuts.
0: So it wasn't just the hierarchical thing. It's just like this guy's interrupting. I don't want to live with this guy. I do not want
1: to live with this guy. And so I went up to a guy that I'd kind of talked to and just in my wanderings and he lived in the same wing as me and we'd play some cards or backgammon or whatever he was an older guy and he had a lot of answers he was a very prestigious inmate in the prison he ran the canteen and that's like the seat of prison life uh prison social life is the canteen and what you buy there with your own kind of prison money uh and so i asked his advice and he said yeah you got to get out of there and he introduced me to another guy who was like he had an open spot he had his an open bed in his room. And so convincing him to allow someone to come in when he had a solo room at this point, Right, he the guy did me a solid. And he said, okay, okay. He let me do it. And about a, within two months of that, that guy was driving me crazy. <laughs> and after about two months in, I had f- some friends that, at this point, The thing I realized real quick is everyone who comes to talk to you right away are not the people you want to hang out with. Everyone who holds back and kind of assesses you, those are the people you might want to get to know. Right. So all the people that I thought were like the cool kids or like didn't want to talk to me or didn't like me eventually became some of my closest buddies. Okay. And they're just kind of like, you know, they were weary and that was the way to play it. And I figured that out pretty quick when I eventually moved in with the guy that ran the canteen and I spent most of the time with him. I got peace knowing that, or I came to understanding that everyone's going to annoy me and everyone makes a sound when they sleep. Yeah. I know you're in prison. There's you're in no, prison. <laughs> yeah. Get used to it. And I was able to, you know, come to an understanding with him and talk to him reasonably about issues that we had. But he, as far as the higher hierarchy, he was way ahead of me. He was, it was letting him, letting me live with him made my stay very comfortable. And
0: why was that? Just because he had such status or because he was like the kingpin of the canteen.
1: He ran the canteen. So he had a lot of say. And if you, you know, who got to go first, who got to go when, when you got your canteen, he could control all that. What products were brought in, you know, he had power Mm -hmm. and he was a lifer. So he had a life sentence. So you don't mess with lifers because they have nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. So for instance, in prison, if someone challenges you, it's a physical fight in a cell the person who enters the house and they don't live there, if someone comes into your house and fights you, the person who came into the room is the aggressor because your home has some type of sanctity. Your room is your home. Okay. So if you invite someone into your home, you know, it's not as aggressive as you wanting to fight someone and going into their house. So if you want to test someone, you say, lace up, put your shoes on. I'll be in my cell. Come on in. Like you really want a piece of this? Prove it. Come on in here, right? But no one, even if they were angry, would have set foot in a lifer cell like my roommate without a welcome in. So if they wanted a piece of me, I could just walk to my room and no one would dare come in there. Their life would become hell. Wow. So, So this is a real lucky break. It was good for me, but I didn't realize that right away because okay. if someone got aggressive with me, I would be willing to step into their cell and take the punishment. You're both going to get punished, but the guy who's the aggressor is going to get treated slightly more harshly. So a lot of the times, if someone challenges you and says, come into my cell, they don't really want to fight. They want to test you to see if right. you're going to do this. And it happened to me. Some guy wants to fight and I'm, all right, let's go. Lace up. And I march over to his house and walk in there and he'll be like, it's cool, man. Uh, you know, I was being a dick or whatever. And it's all squashed. Unless there was a real problem you stole from someone or you set, you called someone a certain word, which is a word you wouldn't use in prison, uh, in public, then Really, it's – everything can be worked out just by de-escalating the situation uh, person to person. So
0: if someone invites you into their cell, do you have to go in order to avoid losing
1: the test? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If someone tests you or checks you as it's called, if you don't respond with readiness for violence and disregard for any of the consequences, then you will be taken advantage of by someone who saw that.
0: And in most cases, it doesn't actually escalate beyond that. Or not sometimes. unless
1: there's a real slight, like one of the real serious things, where you have to fight someone because you will not be checked like that. Because you
0: will lose face if you don't fight. Absolutely, absolutely. So and s- did you did you get involved in some of these situations?
1: It's undoubtedly you will be involved in some of those situations. You can't avoid prison politics, and if you try, you will be labeled as a weirdo or someone who is to be victimized. Right. So
0: you have to be ready to fight.
1: You have to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no avoiding. Someone's going to test you. And this person could be physically – they could scare the crap out of you, something you'd never – you would acquiesce to in the real world even now. Like even the, those rules don't apply outside. So if someone gigantic comes up to my cell in prison and wants to fight, I'm fighting them. But, but here, in real life, you're like, not no. No, man. I'm not interested in fighting you. <laughs> no, thank you. Are you i you going to kick that, the shot of me? I, I,
0: so you have to be prepared to get your ass kicked, basically, just oh, yeah. to show that you're willing to get your ass kicked.
1: You have to get your ass kicked so you don't get your ass raped, essentially.
0: And is that is that a real thing that, like, that really happens?
1: It's extremely rare.
0: So it's mm-hmm. not what, like, in my mind, there's, like, people getting raped in prison. Oh, people
1: are getting often. raped in prison, absolutely. But the people who are victimized are victimized by people who are already sexual predators, Who are in prison for sexual predation and the people. So the
0: sexual predators are doing the raping?
1: A majority of the time. And they're going after the marginalized prison population. So people who are transitioning, uh, which you do see in prison, men who are going through that process, and they are absolutely victimized. Wow. Um, And you see it even from the way that they're catcalled, uh, they're treated terribly. And it's not because they see them as women, it's because they see them as weak men. Right. Wow.
0: Is anyone openly gay in prison?
1: Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Yep. And they don't have, I don't think they have a hard time. Uh, Some of them may, but generally they're left to their own devices and they have their own little clique.
0: Okay. So they don't integrate fully per se, or they have their own scene or?
1: Oh, absolutely. I'd say they're fully integrated in prison life. I met gay guys who I was fully had total cordial relationships with. No one judges you for talking to someone who's homosexual at all. Okay, It's, that's kind of. I think even when you see it in prison, there's some older guys who are, you know, drop the F-bombs on them, you know, or are or, right. or not inclusive. And, but most of the younger inmates, they're fine with it. They've wow. had, they've been around gay people their entire lives in their, everyone has a gay person in their family or as interactions yeah. or a friend who's gay. You can't avoid it. And these guys, it doesn't matter to them. They don't care.
0: Wow. So day to day was it, was prison? terrible was it manageable like was it was it kind of fun was it like summer camp to some degree like what were the highs and lows
1: it was absolutely all of those things it's how much time you spend there and how accustomed you become to your surroundings and how well you adapt to it i am blown away by my own ability to adapt to the world that i was living in mm-hmm. my first when i was reading my journal which i'll allude to again i was reading the first 3 months and it was i was so scared and everything i did was motivated by not doing something wrong and just being quiet and just getting through it. And each morning was incredibly disorienting because you wake up and, oh yeah, I'm in prison. Oh, well, you kind of, where am I? And oh shit. And you realize right. the middle of the night, you turn your head and you're on a tiny bed and you smash your head into a, a concrete wall. And it's, oh, I'm not in a king size bed anymore. I'm sleeping in a fucking cot mm-hmm. and it's rock hard. And you're waking up disoriented with some guy snoring or taking a shit 10 feet from you. Right. And it's, you know, wow, this is where I am. And that you getting used to that takes time. Mm-hmm. And eventually when you do, you can start to get lost in the routine of prison. Get up, work out, or do your push-ups, brush your teeth, everything at the same time, every day, get used to it you got to do this because it gives you a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. It's I have to do this next. I have to do this. Just to keep doing the right things in prison. Like a routine. Is difficult because there's temptations to do wrong things all the time. So the routine really helps you stay on the right track, which is parallels with real life. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. And it helps you get used to get up at this time, go to work. Then you have your lunch and then you do this. And they want you to get used to routine and Mm -hmm. you will. You will adapt to it. And once you get used to that routine and you find a little bit of peace in your workouts and the people that you're talking to or your activities or the groups you join or how you choose to spend your leisure time starts to get a little bit enjoyable. And you start Mm -hmm. to take enjoyable aspects or enjoyable things where you can get them. Someone's birthday, Mm -hmm. you all pitch in for some chocolate bars or whatever it is, you start to normalize. And Mm -hmm. you start to get used to the routine and enjoy parts of it. And then it's shattered when you get moved to another prison. Okay. So for me, when I said, you know, all those things you described and encompassed all of it, you know, you said camp, you know, was summer camp. Well, a minimum security prison that I went to felt like that at times. I was when I got there, you know, just the process of being transported there was completely different. And how you start to, you start to get a little more freedom and a little bit more... Uh, they relax the rules a little bit more and there's a little bit more comfort. Mm-hmm. And then you start to feel like I can get through this and I can be done with this. And you are given perspective constantly when you talk to the people you're in prison with. And when are you getting out? I'm right. going to get out in two months. When are you getting out? 15 years. Wow. How long have you been in prison for? 25 years. Uh, you know, what's what's a DVR? You know, how do cell phones work? Wow. So you're given that perspective By the people you're around and by the place you are. And as you get to the minimum security prison, you start to have more and more fun. And that directly correlates with how much time you've got left (laughs) in your sentence. Right?
0: You know, you're counting. Are you counting down the days?
1: In a way, you can't get bogged down in the minutia of... The time until you get out, you have to get bogged down in the minutia of your day-to-day activities. Your breakfast cookery has to be perfect. You're uh, you're cooking your own meals in a minimum. So I was doing these elaborate meals for groups of people and trying to bog myself down in that because if I was crossing days off of a calendar, I think it would have been harder for that day to come.
0: Right. So it's about – it's like mindfulness. It's like meditation. Like Being in the present moment was the way to escape. And if you're constantly like, okay – Another year, like that's just going to grind you down.
1: And that's what does grind you down. When you're about to get out and you're talking to your friends and they're, you're so happy and they're happy for you. But at the same time, it's a reminder of how much time they have left to do.
0: Right. Is that like a, a taboo thing to just like not, not get too excited about the fact that you're about to leave?
1: No, it's kind of strengthens your, it strengthened my bond. I was friends with a couple lifers. I was lucky enough to live on a unit with some guys who were great guys but in for a long time for some pretty heinous things and they were happy for me and it made me appreciate them more that they could yeah you're getting out we're so happy for you and they say things like don't fuck up and don't come back here
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know they they are encouraging to you mm-hmm. but i know they go back to their cell and they think about it
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. which they're going to do for 20 years mm-hmm. and There's guys who I know that I'll never see again or Mm -hmm. never talk to again. Mm -hmm. And I was incredibly close with them and they helped me through some of my toughest moments. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's lacking in prison justice reform is that they cut off people who have similar experiences. So because I'm on parole, one of my conditions is that I cannot associate with people who have who have been involved in criminality, past, present, or currently, or they turn their life around, even if they have a previous charge, stay away from them. Right. So I can't write letters to those guys. I can't talk to them on the phone.
0: So you're not allowed to talk to your friends that es- are still in prison. You're e- not allowed.
1: Essentially, because they could continue their criminality through me, right. or I could help them with nefarious plans that they might have. But in reality, it would probably just be to talk and to let them know that I still cared about them, mm-hmm. that I was the thinking The support about them. that you had. That connection, that they cut it off. And these sometimes that's all I have. And there's guys that I made connections with in there that were really genuine, where I was sure that these guys weren't trying to take anything from me. Mm -hmm. And they helped me way more than I would ever help them. It was selfless Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And the fact that I can't contact them until I'm – done with my parole, when I can finally write them a letter that they'll actually get, not under a pseudonym, you know, I wouldn't do it anyway, because if they somehow realize that I did it, I could go back to prison for writing a letter, which I don't plan to do. But I do plan to contact these guys. And I feel really guilty that I can't talk to them and, you know, encourage them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And no one else is there for them. So that's kind of, I see that as one of the major problems with criminal justice reform is they don't let people with similar histories talk especially when they have had a successful turnaround Mm -hmm. and support each other support each other even though support is like the
0: only thing that really helps get people through prison in a way
1: you need something to tether you to the world outside of prison television keeps you connected right but that's about it and the conversations you have with the people outside there's nothing else I remember an incident at the medium security prison that shook me to my core. It was my first experience witnessing unmitigated violence where someone was really hurt badly and died eventually because of it. Every evening, I would go to the gym, play basketball, and then go for a walk in the yard, which I'm sure people are familiar with prison speak envision a huge fenced in basically grassy area, which is what it is with about Mm -hmm. a kilometer of track running around it. And me and my workout partner would cool off and walk and talk about our plans for the future. And he was coming up for parole recently. So we were running through possible scenarios and I was interviewing him and about halfway around the track, he stopped me and he kind of pointed across the field and I saw another guy I know grab A smaller kid and start beating him with, I mean, we're talking, this guy was six foot five, 250 pounds, muscle, just powerful, scary guy. Mm -hmm. And he grabbed a much smaller guy, maybe 150 pounds and just beat him without graphic details to death, essentially for about two minutes as we walked the track. And... In prison, when you see a violent act going down, you are supposed to ignore it. You don't draw attention to it. If you were to say, break up the fight, then you might become a victim yourself for Mm -hmm. getting involved. So basically the idea is to ignore it. So we just walked past this vicious beating happening and there's nothing we could do. And we're just kind of like quiet, walking by it as this guy is getting beaten to death. And... After it was finished, the guy got up, cleaned himself up. The guards didn't see anything and went back to the gym and we just kind of kept walking around. And when it was time to move back to our cells and the guards were doing their walk around, they saw this guy and we at prison went into lockdown and they eventually found the guy and sent him off to maximum security to eventually be tried for uh, essentially another murder. Wow. And so there was no context. So I was just like, what just happened? Why did that happen? Why did this guy do that? You know, he's wow, that was, it had a serious impact seeing a guy lying there, you know, gigantic pool of blood, essentially dying. And when I heard what it was about, it it really hit home for me just how dangerous prison was. It was this smaller kid had just gotten to prison and he asked to borrow a little bit of food, essentially 50 cents worth of candy from the bigger inmate. And after about two weeks, he hadn't paid him back. So in the middle of the unit, in front of about 100 guys, the big guy walked up to the little guy and said, where's my money, you fucking goof? And when you call someone a goof in prison, it's one of those words that is an instant fight. And for a little bit of history, it harkens back to when if you swore at another prisoner back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, you would get a demerit or a point against you. And that would delay your parole time, ostensibly. So guys would not swear. They would use words like goof or rat or Jimmy or whatever slang they came up with to kind of fit people into a certain box. And goof was the worst one that you could – you call a child molester a goof. You call someone who – you want to fight a goof. And the big guy called him that in public just to fuck with him, just to test him. I don't think he had any intention to wanting to fight the kid. He was just being a jerk called him a goof and the kid kind of walked away and immediately other inmates started going to the kid and saying, you're going to let him call you a goof? You know, If you do that, if you let him get away with this, then you're next. We're going to get you. And so the kid felt like he had no other option but to attack this guy. So the kid put a rock into a sock and this was his fatal error that he used one of the kind of stretchy black prison socks and put a rock in it, Waited by the tennis courts. And once the big guy doing his nightly lap walked by, swung the rock at him in the sock, meaning to hit him in the head. But the stretchiness in the sock caused his swing to elongate the sock and the rock and the sock wrapped around the other guy's neck, which was a surprise attack. They called it a torpedo, essentially a surprise attack mm-hmm. out of nowhere. And he grabbed the rock and the kid and took it from there. And that's where we saw it happening. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a 50 cent debt and a word and some other inmates egging the kid on uh, and the kid's dead. Mm -hmm.
0: How could that situation have been de-escalated?
1: The kid could have handled it different. He could have waited until the big guy kind of walked into the mess hall or unit where there were lots of guards around and thrown a punch. He would have gotten his ass beat but not too badly and he would have been seen as a stand-up guy. And the big guy probably wouldn't have cared either because the kid was just standing up for himself. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, nothing would have happened to him or he could have done nothing. And the other inmates would have, who were just egging him on, probably wouldn't have attacked the kid just for not responding Mm -hmm. because that would have gotten them points, which would have delayed their eventual parole. Mm -hmm. Again, they're just fucking with the kid and the kid believed him. So he really just didn't know. Didn't know. When we saw that and seeing how other people react to it, also guys laughing about it, thinking it's funny, still wrapped up in, you know, that tough guy image and being the toughest guy there or what have you, it was shocking to me. And that stuck with me. And I still think about that. And it was rough. I saw a lot of fights in prison. And the way fights happen in prison are way different. I mean, there's no crowd of people crowding around going, fight, fight, fight it's silent. You know, you hear everything. You hear the sound of the knuckles hitting the jaw or the head hitting the pavement Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. And kind of these hollow thuds of somebody getting beaten before the guards break it up or essentially pepper spray everybody. Mm -hmm. You start to get used to that. But the violence on that level was crazy.
0: How did you get savvy? Like, was it just making connections, finding people that you could trust, getting... Or did you already kind of like, because of the career path you had before, have a sense of how to navigate prison?
1: Oh, God, I had no idea. I figured out pretty quick, just watching how other people reacted and trying to figure out who was important, who they talked to, who to avoid, and just keep your mouth shut. And that earns you a lot of respect in the beginning, just being quiet.
0: But do you think that you had a leg up from being in a world where you were around, quote, unquote, tough guys? If yeah. I were to go to prison mm-hmm. or someone who, you know, their crime comes out of left field, what, what is going to happen
1: to that person? That's pretty much the dividing line. If you're someone who's just made a mistake, something happened, look at the guy who drove the bus that killed the Humboldt hockey team.
0: Right. What's going to happen He's going to
1: him? Gonna do eight years and it's going to be a very hard time for him. He's going to be victimized. That's a very high profile case. Right. And he's going to be victimized most likely because of the prison they send him to. And uh, he won't be in a minimum security. And the publicity level of his crime that everyone right. knows about it. And, and kid, children were hurt. Kids were kids were killed. And he made a mistake and he's going to have a tough time. Other guys who weren't high profile are still going to have a hard time, but it's not, they're not going to be necessarily targeted for that level of violence, I think. We'll right. see what happens to the guy, but he's going to be shunned by just about everyone. And for me, yes, it was easier because my charges gave me respect. hmm And if they come up and talk to you and they're honest and you're honest with them, people generally realize real fast that you're not someone that they want to fuck with because, you know, you should know the angles, like what you're alluding to from being in the game. Right. Because there's lots of guys like you who are in the game, who there's, that's where you're going to find those are going to be your friends. The guys who are at the same level on the outside are going to be your friends on the inside. Right. So I feel bad for the people who find themselves in prison with no idea of the world or the people they are going to be around or the people who are going to be trying to take advantage of them.
0: So what was it like getting released?
1: That was the greatest, that was the happiest I think I've been. I don't have children. When I got married, it was amazing. I had one of the best weddings. It was fantastic. But the feeling of seeing my wife waiting for me as I, you know, in the parking lot as I signed my last little paper and walked out was unbelievable. And I had a, you know, you thinking you're fantasizing about that moment Mm -hmm. from the day you get in Mm -hmm. and it's confusing getting out. I wasn't in for very long at all, but it took time to adjust. Absolutely. Even to this day, if someone walks quickly up behind me, I'm on guard. If I hear someone walking down the street whistling, I want to tell that person to shut the fuck up, even though there's no reason to do that. Enjoy your whistling. That's fantastic. (laughs) You're a great whistler. But it's those left, it's those residual effects of prison, of those laws Mm -hmm. that have an impact no matter how much time you spend there. And if you're in a federal penitentiary, you're spending time in prison. You're going to be there for over a year and it's going to have an impact because you have to adapt. And if you don't adapt and follow those rules, you're going to be in trouble.
0: It's, I mean, it could be a life or death kind of adaptation to, Mm -hmm. you know, like the etiquette in the real world is important, but you're probably not going to die because of it. So I could see Mm -hmm. how these would get really ingrained. It's like, do not fuck this up. Do not make noise. Do not call someone
1: a goof. Absolutely. I kept a list of vocabulary for my own enjoyment because some of them are very comical, but also like, what does that mean? Or someone would say something and I'd say, oh yeah, yeah, that fucking Jimmy. And then I'd go back to my cellmate and say, what's a Jimmy? And he'd be like, oh, it's a guy who did this or it's this. Okay, what's this? Oh, that, that means to do this or what have you. I mean, the longer you're in, the, the more stuff you learn, the more mm-hmm. slang you get and mm-hmm. you need to figure it out quick. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting you chose the word goof to key in on because I still see it as the ultimate insult. Really? If I'm at work or something like that and someone really pisses me off, I'm like, fucking goof. And I'm kind of saying it to myself, but, or you're a goof and people don't, it has no impact on the street whatsoever, Mm -hmm. unless you've been in prison. So I know if, you know, I'm in an argument with someone, I call them a goof and the way they react, I can tell if they've been to prison or not. Right. (laughs) But uh, that word, which I've realized now, why do you even use it? If I want to swear at someone, call them a fucking loser or an asshole or something. Yeah. But goof has no, no impact anymore.
0: It doesn't? Like if somebody called you a goof, would it spark you?
1: Probably. I would be like, oh, but... I realize now that there's no reason to attack anyone for any reason whatsoever, yeah. so even a word. To me now, that, it's lost all power in a, in a great way. I'm glad I don't have to do that.
0: I mean, you, you had to put a lot of armor on to go into prison. Mm-hmm. What was it like getting out and taking that off again? Or had you already started to kind of disarmor in minimum?
1: Certainly. And that's the point of graduating people to a lower security level. So the reintegration is easier. People who come out of a medium, I think have a much harder time because they have that armor on, as you call it. For me, taking it off was a lot easier because I was going into a family that missed me and loved me, that Mm -hmm. was awaiting my arrival to a job I had waiting to an apartment and I I was going back to a life. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was easy and I wanted to do it so badly, but there's things that change in you that no matter you know, who you are, it's going to be hard to lose those for a little while. And I'm starting to lose them now. They're starting to go away. And part of me is very thankful, but part of me worries that I'm going to lose the perspective I gained from that experience. So going back and reading my journal where I forgot I felt like that. And it had so much value to me because instantly I was, oh, I'm worried about this at work, but that's not something I should worry about. (laughs) I was worried about this two years ago. I was worried about getting stabbed or yeah. having to fight someone because they owed me a $4 debt right. or, you know, just policing my actions constantly. And while it's been easy and there's, there still are those residual effects, you know, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything, but I'm also very wary of people who don't have that support when they come out of prison. They need a ton of support. So it's very difficult for them to de-armor, as you say, because Mm -hmm. there's nothing there to help them. Mm -hmm. And they they need that armor still, not to the point where they're attacking someone who calls them a goof on the street, but to that point where they're not affected by the gigantic challenge they have ahead of them. Mm -hmm. People have a hard time when they come out of prison even getting a job, and it's very easy to fall back into your old crime cycle, as they call it.
0: Do you have opportunities in prison to really be yourself, to really be authentic or to like really open up, to really like express yourself? Are there like therapy programs or if you like get really close to someone?
1: Very rarely. I can count the genuine conversations on one hand. And most of them came because I joined a group. Everyone kind of joins groups, whether it's, you know, you want to lift weights or you want to read books or you want to, whatever it is, do yoga. There's guys who will join it, make a group and start doing it together just to pass the time. Mm -hmm. So for me, my genuine interactions came from the groups where we had common interests and we shared moments because some of the groups are administered by people who aren't inmates. So this group was administered by someone who it was their job to basically police this group or to mediate this group. And because that person forced us into kind of being ourselves and giving honest answers. We didn't feel we had to lie, to look tough, and everyone was sharing. And so in those groups, we kind of had that freedom to be ourselves. And with one, there was one particular guy who was a lifer that around, around the same age as me, very different background, but we got along well because we both happened to be in this group and we happened to like football. But we had some real conversations about him facing another 20 years in prison and about me getting out. And how he would deal with it and how I felt and, you know, how his family views him versus how my family views me. And we had some honest conversations and things that there was no reason for him to lie. He had no angle. There was no benefit for him. Mm -hmm. And those conversations are few and far between because you could share something that could make you a victim. Yeah. And that happens all the time. You say something to someone in confidence or you you say your opinion about something. And someone else says, oh, really? And disagrees and goes and tells someone who disagrees with you. And then you're in a beef before you even knew it. Right. You just, there's so much gossip and so much talk that you have to be really wary of how much you open yourself up to anyone. And even people who are close friends, it can be over in seconds because they did something that you feel is against your personal code of conduct. And that's it for that person. And now you have to not only not associate with them, but hurt them.
0: I mean, it sounds like it's not just your your code of conduct. There's this social structure code of conduct that's imposed upon you. And in certain instances for your own safety, you really do have to react a certain way it's it's like a predictable if this stimulus happens you need to react this way or your prison life could potentially be dangerous or unpleasant
1: it's true there's there's you know the rules of the prison that you have to follow in order to get parole there's the inmate rules exactly which you follow to not get victimized and then within the little inmate groups there's your own rules okay. so there's the rules of your household negotiated between you and your sally we don't do this we don't do that uh if you're going to do this i need to know this if You know, it's do you figure out how to respect each other, and then within the gangs and the threat groups in the prison, there's their own rules. You know that go above and beyond those prison rules. Where if someone says this, you attack them. Where it's you have to hate this person because they're friends with that person. Right. There's rules for everything. How you conduct yourself determines who you are in prison.
0: So now that you're out, do you feel those effects? Still, do you have trouble connecting with people? Like you're you're very honest with me, but we've mm-hmm. known each other for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, is it difficult to connect with people? Is it difficult to open up?
1: No, it's really easy for me. And that's part of my, where it started as the honesty policy, kind of owning what I've done. Uh, It was difficult with my parents sitting down, them asking me and me answering honestly all the questions they had. Mm -hmm. My closest friends and their morbid curiosity about prison and all the things, all the salacious stuff they Mm want to know about. (laughs)
0: Like
1: me. (laughs) Well, no, no, this isn't. I would say there's not too many salacious stories we've gone on. There's so many just things that from the drug usage to the violence to um, everything in prison life is worth examining. The food. You know, anything in your normal life, love, sex, you know, mm-hmm, ambition, mm-hmm. careers, you know, whatever you're interested in, it happens in uh it happens in prison as well on a different mm-hmm, scale. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, it's very easy for me to be open because it helps me remember, gain perspective and own who I am. It's not who I am, but it's shaped who I've become in being my impetus for change and mm-hmm. helping me realize what i now know to be important in life but it's a case-by-case basis it's who judges you it's who wants to know what of morbid curiosity is who wants to know if you're like how you're doing now and people who want to be proud of you essentially who want to give you an attaboy it's i love discussing it whether i love people don't react differently to me don't like it they think i'm a terrible person to me that's interesting too Mm -hmm. and that's fine You know, if you can absolutely not want to have me around your family because of what I've done, no problem. Um, I respect that. It doesn't make me angry or anything. Or transversely, you can want to get to know me better because you think I'm interesting because I went to prison, which to me is a little bit sad because that's not what makes me interesting. You know, like I've been through something like that, but my interest in what I think is interesting, I think is what makes me interesting. But again, people want to know all about you. And that's a part of my life and I have no problem talking about it with anyone because I've had those tough conversations with the people who I love and respect.
0: Do you see yourself uh, having these conversations with your own children in the future?
1: That's an interesting question. I know that my children will know, but I probably won't discuss it with them until they are capable or they show me they're capable to understand all of the aspects of it mm-hmm. from politically you know, um, criminal justice and criminal justice reform, to marginalized people who are sent to prison, to people who just make mistakes, to people who are hardcore criminals and what to be aware of and be scared of until they're savvy enough to understand the repercussions of their actions. I probably won't tell them the repercussions of mine.
0: So looking at those perspectives on prison, I remember last time we talked before this, you had said that for you, prison was the right punishment.
1: Absolutely. It was what needed to happen to me to get me to where I am now. I think if I would have had a slap on the wrist and I would have had a suspended sentence or I would have gone to trial and had not guilty, I would have gone right back to what I was doing. Absolutely. It took being arrested to have those moments of clarity, to have those moments when everything I thought was wrong, everything I valued is empty, (laughs) is totally – I'm a totally emotionally bankrupt person, Mm -hmm. you know, and – If I would have gotten away with it or gotten off with a lighter sentence and not gone to prison, then I wouldn't have changed. Absolutely.
0: Are there cases where you feel like prison for certain people, certain populations is the wrong
1: approach? I think it depends, again, case by case what happens. I think there's people who need treatment more than they need prison or they might need treatment before they go to prison. Right. Um, I think society punishes people by taking them away from people. And in prison, it punishes people by removing them from the population of the prison. If you want to punish right. someone, you isolate them. Right. And that's the best we've been able to come up with.
0: <laughs> Which just goes to show how powerful socializing, how powerful human connection is for a social animal like humans. It's like the ultimate punishment is we're just going to put you away. And then even when we put you away, we're going to have another put away. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that's it. And it's you, it's all of your... Your freedoms are completely taken away even just to talk to someone, to have a conversation with someone. And that's when you see people starting to crack. And that's when you Mm -hmm. see people becoming worse and deteriorating. It's being around people that helps. And the people who – I mean I see it's a disproportionate amount of – First Nations individuals in prison, then, you know, it's 25% of the prison population and maybe 6% of Canada's population. Mm -hmm. So you see that and you hear people who've lived in residential schools or um, people who've been abused by people in power, uh, the system essentially, and you start to think maybe you shouldn't be in prison. I've talked to people who are in for 20 years and they seem like they couldn't hurt anyone. You know, it's like, this guy's harmless, but he got a lot of time maybe a disproportionate amount of time for the crime he committed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you see that more with marginalized peoples in prison yeah.
0: i mean it's interesting that it's like because of your advantage that extreme punishment was maybe useful and justified for you to I'm, give you the perspective that you needed whereas mm-hmm. someone who's at a disadvantage it's like overkill mm-hmm. and it raises the question like what are, are we trying to reform people or are we trying to punish people and is there value in punishing people? Like, do you feel that going to prison has absolved you in a way? You're like, look, I did something that I'm not proud of, but I went to prison and that makes it better. Hmm. Or for you, was it more just about proving to yourself what had value?
1: Certainly proving to myself what, what had value was important for my my belief system. But um, I don't feel that I would ever be absolved of what I did. You have to accept what you did and own it and deal with the consequences. So prison for me made me understand the consequences of my actions, which is something I was completely out of touch with. So I don't feel absolved. And I know that when I finish my sentence, I'm going to feel like I have paid my debt to society. Because since 2014, I've been dealing with the fallout of my actions. And while I was sentenced to four years, basically, it's been going on for a lot longer than that. Mm -hmm. So it'll be six years of dealing with this. And once I am done with it, once I'm done with my parole, I will feel like I've crossed a line because really I'm just a normal citizen again. So my life changes. I don't have a parole officer. I have no conditions. If I want to travel somewhere with my wife, no problem. And I'm certainly glad that I went to prison to gain that perspective. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 100%. It's was the punishment I needed. And as far as punishing people or reforming them, I think prison kind of tries to do both. They certainly succeed at punishing people, but they don't generally win at the reformation. I'm not sure what the recidivism rates in Canada are, but like you alluded to, the people who are marginalized who could use treatment and maybe a window into themselves, into why that why, what's happened in their life and helping them come to terms with it and the trauma they've been through mm-hmm. is underserviced in prison. They have groups you can talk to and programs you can do, but the people running the programs aren't fantastic examples. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, they could be people who've taken a two week training course who used to work in the kitchen and now they run a program for violent offenders. Right. So there's the way they do it is questionable. What happens while they're in prison and after they're released for them needs to be examined. So they're not, I don't think they're winning on the reform aspect, but they're certainly winning on the punishment aspect. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm just, I'm not sure. I'm wondering what the value of punishment
1: is. For me, it it absolutely had value. Okay. Uh, But you see other, I saw people all the time who it has zero value. It's a zero sum game. The system doesn't win. The people don't win. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no winner. They're just, everyone's losing.
0: What are the cases in which punishment doesn't work?
1: For people who don't see it as punishment anymore, uh, there's a saying in prison, you know, I'm here for three hots and a cot, which is three hot meals and a place to sleep, essentially. So I'd see guys who would get a two-year sentence. They'd be in for six months and they'd be out onto the street with the clothes that they wore in prison. And then they'll immediately skip their parole check-in, go get high for three or four days and be back in the prison a week later wearing the same clothes they left in. Mm -hmm. and prison's not helping them it's Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just they will spend six months there they'll make two dollars 50 cents a day they won't spend a dime of it so when they get out of the prison in six months they'll have a few hundred bucks they'll blow it on drugs and be back right away and it's a constant revolving door i saw a guy come back three or four times in the time i was there Mm -hmm. and it's it pissed me off initially i was like dude you're getting a chance what are you doing and he was a guy that I would play cards with from time to time, and I'm like, "What the fuck are you doing? Like, why don't why don't you just go to your parole hearing? You know, you'll be in a halfway house and then work on getting a job, and don't come back here anymore. Like, I'm never coming back here." He's like, "Yeah, man, I, I'm not, no one's hiring me. I'm not getting a job. I, you know, I've been in and out of prison for 20 years. I. This is what I know. It's hopelessness. It's essentially it's of it's their fallback plan. It's their, it's they'll make a mistake which they don't view as a mistake. It's just how they live their life, whether it's." addiction to drugs or prison isn't so bad in their mind that they'll go out and commit another offense just to get sent back or violate their parole to get sent back. And it's comfortable for them. They have friends there. They have a life there. If you do enough time there, it becomes your home.
0: Last but not least... What's the shame angle here? I feel like your, your honesty, your openness, your embracing the truth of the story is a very healthy sort of anti-shame. Like, do you feel shame about your crimes? Do you feel shame about going to prison? Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a lot of shame for you? What's, what is the connection?
1: Oh, the shame was strong. <laughs> um, so we'll start at the beginning. For me, the shame of everyone finding out what I was up to was crushing in a very short term. I was ashamed of myself for what I'd done, but as soon as I realized I wasn't being shunned, that went away really quickly. So the long-lasting effect is for instance I was at a friend's party, uh his birthday party last weekend, and I'm seeing people I haven't seen for a while. These are old friends like you and I. Mm-hmm. And I'm meeting their spouses for the first time. It's oh great to see you. I haven't seen you so long. And the spouses are being introduced. This is Bob, this is John, this is so-and-so this is me oh hi i've heard of you Mm -hmm. and it's like oh man like (laughs) uh, this is terrible like i don't want to be that guy where you've heard of me beforehand as the guy who went to prison who's a total piece of shit and i've i that's i'm comfortable being judged like that because yes i did it but i feel so much shame at that point it's kind of like oh man like these are really good people and you know i get over it pretty quickly But I'm still, I'm always going to feel that because people Mm -hmm. are going to react to me like that. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's a shameful thing. And I think that's actually healthy for me because it gives me that perspective where it reminds me like, don't fall back into that. Don't do that. Like you might need some money, but don't do it that way. It's the shame is a motivator. I don't want it anymore. I, you know, it's good and I hate it. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a part of my life. I did a shameful thing that I understand now was shameful. Before, I felt shame at being exposed for what I did, but I didn't feel shame about the actions that I did. I felt shame that I was exposed. Right. That the people I loved, you know, were now finding out the truth. And I felt shame that I had to lie about it. But I didn't feel shameful about what I was doing. And that's the interesting aspect for you and shame. For in my previous life, I don't feel shame about it. But the actions that put me in prison, I do feel shameful about so it's kind of it's at odds i'm at odds with it
0: that's interesting i mean for me there's there's a kind of distinction between guilt and shame in which guilt is your inner compass where you're like Mm -hmm. i say what i did was bad and i feel like when you talk about the motivation to stay on the path you're on now that's really guilt Mm. shame is those moments when someone else meets you and says oh Mm. and the way you feel about their judgment like that's the shame Mm -hmm. that will haunt you If people reject you, if people judge you,
1: I I'm, I'm prepared for that. You know, you, it's not out of the blue. I'm almost expecting it. Mm -hmm. And I think that tempers its effect on me, Mm -hmm. but certainly it's not a good feeling. I mean, I'm, I i do not I can tell myself and the way I kind of solve it, that conflict within myself is I don't care what other people think. I really don't. Everyone that I love is forgiven me and Mm -hmm. I have a stronger relationship now than ever
0: so it's, it's you care about the opinions that matter. Exactly. And you don't care about the opinions but that don't matter. But that's
1: what I have to tell myself when I feel that shame. Yeah.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for sharing.
1: Thanks, AJ.